30 years ago, a successful young banker at one of Kenya's largest financial institutions took an enormous risk. James Mwangi left his lucrative job and a promising if conventional career to take over a small building society that was staggering towards death's door. It was called Equity Building Society or EBS. EBS started out in the early 1980s as a savings and loan society, a place where village workers, small farmers and merchants could pool their money. At the time, most banks in Kenya refused to provide everyday people with even the most basic financial services. Equity had helped fill that gap. But it was in deep financial trouble. By 1993, Equity had been declared insolvent. It was on the brink of shutting down. In my conversation with James Mwangi, the soft-spoken former accountant told me he knew the enormous risk involved when he took the helm of EBS. Yeah, it is true. I made a decision to leave from my previous employer and the decision was painful because my salary declined to a sixth of what I was earning. But the decision to go to equity had two aspects of it. One was empathy. They were the savers in equity building society. So I could associate and I felt if I could do anything to abate the pain that the village was about to go to, then I could uh, have saved the savings of the villagers. James Mwangi grew up in a small village in central Kenya. His father was killed in violence that erupted during the fight for independence from British colonial rule. That left the family of seven children in precarious financial straits. To survive, James, his mother, and his siblings sold milk, tea, charcoal, and fruits to others in the village. That's where he got his first taste of business and his first lesson in how financially precarious life can be for working people. That's another reason James took on the challenge of rescuing the building society. It was to lift the villagers. It was to give them access to financial services. So I felt that was compelling enough for me to make the commitment so that we could get them back on track. And truly looking back, that objective was achieved many folds. And the villagers, of course, were saved from losing their savings. Welcome to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. Hi everyone, I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. James Mwangi went to university on a scholarship. Then he began his career in financial services as an accountant in the capital, Nairobi. James rose to the post of group financial controller. That's when the founder of the Equity Building Society, who had known James as a boy, asked for his help. EBS was floundering. At that moment in time when you made that decision, wasn't there some fear? I mean, uh, calculus here that I'm about to leave a very successful career, fraction of my salary, my brand, my personal brand is a good brand right now. I've had a good career. You're leaving a lot behind. How did you 
do the cost benefit in your head? Like, oh, how did you manage the fear of like, maybe this is a very risky move? There was a lot of uncertainty. And of course, uncertainty breeds fear when you are making decisions. But I realized that I overcame fear to make that bold move because I felt one had a supportive system, had a wife who was understanding of the situation. And I also felt I was young enough that if it didn't work, I would still be able to get back to the job market. But I underestimated that if it didn't work, it could have gone with my name. So that uncertainty maybe never played completely into my face before I made decision. When I look back today, yeah, I feel that it was a bold move. Maybe a move, I, if it is today, I would be more or less covered. You know, one of the vignettes you've talked about in the past was going to meet the governor of the central bank, uh, who also said uh, he was expecting you to be part of this story. You went there on behalf of the building society, but then tell us a little bit about that moment and what do you think he saw in you that gave him confidence that if you were part of this, he would uh, support the entity? Yeah, it was an interesting conversation because I took the chairman and the the managing director to intercede for them to the governor, not to be crossed. And the governor asked me, what will they do that they have not done for the last 10 years? They have had the chance, they have had the opportunity. And then he turned to me and said, if it was you, I could give you a chance because you could do things maybe differently. And this was because he knew me. I was a very senior banker in the country. I had interaction with him. I was leading a a fairly innovative group that was growing and had differentiated itself. My friends looked at me uh, when the governor said, uh, if it was you, I could give them a chance. So they wanted to see how I could react. And at that very moment, I realized I couldn't abandon them because I'd committed to take them to be given a chance. So I became the vehicle for the opportunity and for the chance. And the uh, governor pushed his writing pad to me and said, okay, write the resignation and picked on his phone to call my managing director to say, I've pushed James to revive uh, Equity Building Society, replace him as your group financial controller. That was a very simple conversation that ended with me joining Equity to do the turnload. So let's talk about after you joined this organization in the incredible transformation that you have led. Tell us what have been some other kind of risky moments, bets you had to place in this journey. I'm sure there were many big bets that you had to place. So what were some of those? And let's just talk through one or two of those. Equity is a story of bold decisions and bold decisions from the onset because it was technically insolvent. Nobody thought it could be revived. So my jumping into it was the first bet. But the second bet came quickly. Now that we have started making progress, we have no financing 
And I remember making the decision to acquire the first banking system, and the cost was higher than the capital. And when the chairman of the board asked me, what of if anything went wrong and you're spending more than the capital of equity building society? I said, uh, nothing would go wrong because uh, I'm responsible for the decisions. And you can see that bold decision in um, 2004 was a turning point uh, because we moved from manual systems to the first computerized system. And that was a huge transformation from experience of customer. But you can imagine one acquisition or one procurement spending more than the entire capital, but betting that uh, a very big bet, if it goes right, it transforms um, the organization. The last one maybe I would like to share was two years ago when we felt that with COVID that the customers needed to be supported. And we made a bold uh, decision to withhold dividend payout for two years. Not that because we are not profitable, but because we wanted to provide cushion to customers who were affected. And uh, we gave them up to three years uh, moratoriums of both principal and interest. And then said that gap, the backing had to be by the shareholders. And essentially... Uh, we gave prolonged breaks of up to 45% of all the customers took rescheduling of their loans. And the shareholders bore the brunt of that decision uh, by not uh, getting dividends uh, for two years. But you can see it has paid back in an incredible way because we demonstrated trust and confidence and empathy to the customers. After two years, the, the balance sheet of the bank had doubled from $6 billion US dollars to $13 billion. Uh, so that decision, again, was one big decision that looked very bold to give a break for three years of principal price interest repayment and fortify that with a buffer of capital through withholding a dividend. So how do you do that? I mean, you mentioned bold action. You've given us some great examples here right now of really kind of decisive, bold decision-making by you. A lot of leaders struggle with bold action. A lot of individuals struggle with bold action. What do you find yourself doing when you have to make such a decision? Are you trying to de-risk it? In your mind, are you saying, okay, let's think of the scenarios and the contingencies are you trying to mobilize a lot of people around it so it's multiple of you involved? Or are you driven by this larger compelling empathy and purpose that makes you believe that I have to do it even if it's risky? There are two aspects to it. Uh, the first one that we really test is the fitment to the purpose that the organization has set for itself. There is a perfect alignment and we feel that this is a game changer decision, and then we, t we tend to be very, very bold. The second one is whether it aligns to our value systems. While the purpose acts as the compass, pointing leader to the true north, the guardrails of ensuring that you, you keep safe is a value system. So if there are, we test, is, is this boldness driven by conflict? We have to be sure that it's not uh, driven by any anything that is different from the values that we subscribe to. The other one, of course, is what would be the implication of success 
And that is really sometimes is the reward that justifies the college uh, and um, brings to a great extent the authenticity. If it's really authentic, if it's sincere, if it's genuine, if its probability of success is very high, then we tend to make very bold uh, decisions. But they are all driven by the possibility of achieving objective. It's the purpose is really the overriding uh, reason to, to help you overcome fear and uncertainty. All these decisions have an uncertainty, but you have really to really overcome that fear of uncertainty by looking at the possibilities uh, of the, a game-changer moment uh, in the decision. James Mwangi says, taking bold action requires having a strong sense of purpose to be successful. Too many companies deploy purpose or a reason for being as a promotional vehicle to make themselves feel virtuous and to look good to the outside world. Some business leaders have foggy ideas about what purpose is. They conflate it with strategy and with concepts like mission, vision, and values. In my view, truly effective leaders need to develop a clear personal purpose to succeed. But it doesn't come easily. I have struggled a lot with uh, my personal purpose because I've found myself and my life very integrated with that of equity. I seem to leave the equity purpose as its leader. I have to demonstrate to the people, I have to leave the purpose so that they can see and I can inspire them. So to a great extent, I find that the purpose of equity has become my essence in life. But when I boil it down to the big dreams of the organization, I find putting smiles on the faces of people a very fulfilling reason to wake up every day. Whether that then is the personal purpose putting smiles on people's face. But then I look at the equity purpose is to change lives, give dignity to people, expand opportunities to people, all that contribute to people being happy. So I find the two completely interwoven. Tell us about your childhood. You, your mother raised you and your siblings, and, and she obviously played a big role I've read and heard you talk about. Could you tell us about some of, and give us a, maybe one story even about that really exemplifies her role in your life, if you can think of a story. I saw my mother having a huge role of inspiring me to become who I am. One of the most bold decisions I ever, ever saw my mother when she took me to Form 1. And of course, I, I didn't realize that to go to Form 1, you needed shoes. I'd never worn shoes. And so my mother was told by the principal that, no, there is no admission in this school without shoes. And she looked at the principal and said, what are you talking about? He passed his certificate of primary education without shoes. Admit him. That's what he has come here to do, to study. He's not to wear shoes. And the principal was taken aback, couldn't argue with the mother, but I could see my mother was determined. She was not going to go back home with me 
because she needed her son to acquire education and she was not going to let anything come between her and educating her son within the means that she had. And my comfort was not of concern to her. Its concern was me getting education. And she didn't care whether I looked like other children or not. That, that was one of the and most... Form 1 is what grade? Uh, how old were you? I was about 14. Yeah, so it's really a very tender age. But you could see her passion for education. Yet, herself, she had never gone through a formal school. She had not attended any formal education, yet believed that what was best for her son uh, was education. His widowed mother stood up for her young family in any number of ways. She resisted pressure from James's uncles to hand over her land, standing up against a culture that restricted the right to own property to men. And I saw her fiercely resist, uh, saying because she's a woman being discriminated, her lad being taken away, sort of disinherited anything that she had. And eventually, she got her five acres to herself, and that's how she brought us up. So um, she fought the causes of justice, causes of fairness, and uh, causes of rights. And uh, I, I see a little bit that maybe I've learned a little bit to stand up to what one truly believe in, whether it's education, whether it's the right of women, whether it's laws that are repugnant to the rights of women, and starting up. And I've won her, seen her win her battles consistently. How do you think about this idea of empathy and helping? You know, one of the things you've done very successfully, even when you joined the Equity Building Society, was the sense of empathy and wanting to help the unbanked in Africa. At one point, you even have described that the customers you were going after as you were thinking about your market was the customers like your mother who kept her money under the mattress. It's true, and I've observed these great purpose needs to be supported by values because they define the what and the values define the how. When we went to Ecuador, it's not just that we removed the barriers to inclusion, but it's how we made people feel. People came to the bank because of the way we treated them, not what we offered them. And that is where then I see, I see values and purpose complementing each other in the initiatives that, that you make. So for equity group, the fact that we focused on the population that was previously condemned as unbankable and completely excluded from the table of resource allocation and condemned to never realize their dreams. It was essential that we enter into the relationship from a, an understanding of the circumstances and situation and to show a difference in the way we treated them. And I think that's where empathy came in. But I've also realized most of compelling purposes at the end of the day, they appeal to the inner soul of a person. You do it because there's a, a personal appeal. It is touching the core of you. And I have realized empathy is a very powerful tool when you are dealing with others, and particularly when you are supporting, such that you the approach in doing is, is not seen uh, to be benefactor relationship, 
but you are one of them, you are walking with them, their cause, you are empowering. You are not doing it for them. You are not changing their lives. You are empowering them to change uh, their lives. It, so it's more of the approach that I find empathy has played a very huge role. And it has eased the path. And I guess our efforts uh, have then uh, met or progressed on the path of least resistance because people feed you emotionally and you are seen to be authentic and genuine. So as you think about this, can you tell us a personal story of something you saw which really brought out this idea of empathy for you? I remember, I think it was in 2014, um, an elder, approximately 74 years of age, came in the morning into the office, found I was in a boardroom, but he chose to sit in. And I was seeing him, I was finishing the board meeting. Who was this person? Neroda from uh, Nakuru village. That's about 200 kilometers away from Nairobi. And he had traveled all the way from Nakuru, a town called Albagon. He arrived at nine in the morning, but I was in a board meeting. The board meeting ended at three. But he chose to wait all those hours, despite being persuaded. And eventually, when I came out of the boardroom and he was sashed in, he said, I've been here since morning, but I only want to take five minutes. I felt now I'm at an advanced age, and maybe I may pass on. But you may never know what you have done to the lives of many of us. I just came to thank you and to know that you are day-to-day activities make a difference in the lives of us. He went on to give him the practical example of his life. He was one of the victims of the crashes in Kenya 2007-2008 that almost brought civil war in the country, and uh, he became a squatter on the roadside. And we gave him a small loan that he bought a piece of land where he put his own house. And he went on to say, my wife now milks a cow, proceeds of what alone we got from you. And as she walks to the roadside to sell her milk like any other woman, she's happy and she's looking young. And for that reason, I felt I should never die before I tell you how grateful I am and that what you are doing is making a difference to people. That to me was a turning point that brought it home what it means to serve people at the moment of need. So that's when I saw feedback on empathy in a very practical way. The latest one was really the story that has gone around from that decision we made of giving people loan repayment breaks of up to three years. And I saw how the masses, the population responded by consolidating their banks. Most people are multi-banked. And what people did was then uh, to aggregate their banking to equity in, as a feedback. And then constantly we receive this message, if it were not for equity, if it were not for the decision we made, our businesses could have busted. There was no way we had closed the restaurant. So if you insisted on us paying, there was nothing we could pay from. And you could really see uh, the emotions of the people. But the real thing is that the emotions then are backed by their actions. They have consolidated their banks. The bank has doubled when the banking industry has shrunk.
Many successful business leaders connect purpose and profit in what is often called the simultaneous solve. They aim to deliver profits and social benefits in tandem, solving multiple challenges at once. But research shows that it's hard to make such idealized goals pan out. In the case of Equity Building Society, James Mwangi had to convince shareholders to forego their dividends so he could waive customer interest payments until the economy recovered. I asked him if he views this kind of purpose-driven decision as a kind of tax that a business must pay to really flourish. So people, some people like to say that let's connect purpose to profit. And this very example now, you have to make a very tough decision where you're telling shareholders no dividends, but we are going to give customers longer time to pay back their loans uh, or no interest at least, interest waiver. Is purpose connected to profit in some way for a business or is purpose like a tax on business that you must pay? Purpose for me is a basis of a business model, of a business model that combines social and economic, a model that brings shared prosperity, a model that has a twin capability, a social and economic model. And so purpose can be profitable right, in the sense that it, it propels the economic engine to, to do better because of the brand. And that's what we have experienced in equity, that our purpose has not in any way um, affected our ability to do business. And then I would almost say that doing good and doing well are not mutually exclusive. You could be able to do both of them simultaneously, and they, they can be encompassed in a business model. Purpose then brings stakeholders, and particularly community and society, as a stakeholder uh, and a beneficiary from the prosperity being created by a business. If I extend that, I would say then it's a recognition that community and society is a stakeholder, and that is then represented by the objective of the purpose. Let me go back to the hard challenges. What are some of the hardest challenges you have faced in your journey so far? The first biggest handle that I had to do was um, leaving a, a very comfortable job where I was earning 360,000 shillings to go and earn 60,000 shillings, a sixth of what I was earning. My wife was troubled. I was newly wedded. We had just got first-born son, and here he is. I came from a very humble background. I didn't have a financial support system. We were dependent on this. That was very difficult at a very personal level. At uh, the office level, the professional level, uh, many decisions. And particularly, I remember one of the latest ones when Kenya government uh, decided that uh, all the banks in Kenya that had given uh, loans to the national airline, Kenya Airways, would exchange those loans with the shares. And I said no, because I felt uh, customers' deposits cannot be turned into shares of a fading airline. And I'm glad I did that because eventually the depositors would have lost uh, very significant amount of money. So that was a real professional test between you and, and, and the government of a country and studying it 
going to courts where government would have an upper hand, but going all the levels to the Supreme Court to get your rights. So what gave you the courage uh, and the energy to want to do that? Two things. The first one was that it was right. By law, it is wrong to convert uh, depositors' money into shares, uh, speculative shares. Uh, I felt it was not legally right. And I felt it was not uh, right to be speculative with the deposit, the trust that had been given. So that was the real test, and uh, that's what gave me the courage to start up to that challenge. How have you evolved as a leader? How have you evolved as a person? What has changed in you in this journey? I think the journey of equity, which is now a journey of 32 years, has been a journey of huge transformation at a personal level. It has been a very humbling journey, and it has really molded me because of really great success to take success with a lot of humility. While I'm the face of the success, it's a success of contribution of many. The second one is to learn how to be collaborative. To build an organization, you need a very collaborative personality such that you give room for the others, you promote common understanding, and you give each other space. The third one is what we have talked a lot about, being courageous and bold to make very difficult decisions. There are times that you have to make the right decision. And constantly what we have now done is to use purpose as the compass to point us to the right direction. I remember when COVID struck, beyond making the decision, we asked ourselves, if our purpose is to change lives and to give honor and dignity to people and expand fortune, what should we be doing in a COVID situation? Our purpose then indicates we should be saving lives. And we ended up devoting $17 million uh, to protect the doctors in 116 hospitals. And for three years, we provided those hospitals, which were dealing with the COVID situation, with all the PPEs they required, because we felt that was the purpose. Now, you can see it required a lot of boldness for a bank to take the responsibility of health of a nation. I think I've become very analytical, such that as you take these bold decisions, you appreciate that it's calculated risk. It's not just an open risk. So you become very analytical. You try to simulate the situation. You try to do uh, war games just to ensure. So you become cautious, but bold. You are managing your fear very consciously that I will not fail to make a decision, but I will make a decision from uh, analysis of information and fact to reduce the probability of uh, long outcomes. pandemic was a time of deep crisis for many companies, large and small. It was also a profound stress test of how leaders and their organizations hewed to their core purpose or failed to do so. James Mwangi remembers the day in March of 2020, when the president of Kenya reported the country's first case of COVID and what protocols the country would enact in response. And one of them was to close businesses. 
and then quickly we asked ourselves, if the requirement is everybody stays at home, how do people pay loans? And then, of course, then we set our research department to do a deep research on past pandemics. And the striking outcome, they did that for 800 years, was that no pandemic has ever been dealt with in less than two and a half years. Two and a half years. That's how long it takes for you to find the solution. And truly, if you look at COVID, it took two and a half years to find the vaccine. It took three years to have the vaccine fully given to the population, a period of... And that is what informed that if we were to provide a solution to the customers, it had to coincide with a period for which we expected the pandemic. And that is why I said you have to do deep analysis, you have to have your data as you take these bold decisions. You mitigate fear by having facts and knowledge. It's not that you don't fear, you mitigate fear to make decisions by having deep understanding, deep facts and knowledge about the situation. And that is then why you're able to make big decisions because the risk is mitigated, the fear is managed. So once you understood this, and even though you're mitigating fear by calculating how many customers, two and a half years, you still had to make a big decision. A very huge decision. The first one was that we would suspend the dividend payout for two consecutive years. That would be build up about $300 million to create capital buffers. At the same time, that was not building the liquidity farmers we required because 45% of the loans are no longer paying and they are not paying interest, they are not paying the principal. So we had to go again to the market and borrow $1.5 billion to fortify the bank from a liquidity point of view. So once we build the capital buffers, then we build the liquidity buffers. And we felt this was sufficient then for to cushion the bank for three years. Fortunately enough, the customers responded to our um, empathy by rewarding us with uh, consolidating their bank. So essentially, this withheld dividend became new capital to fund growth for the bank because the bank doubled during the two years of COVID. So that, that's how we saw it. And purpose, as I said, helps you to find leader what you should be doing. Because as I said, it leader becomes the true north of where you should be going during difficult times. You have said in other contexts that you will retire in 2032. Whenever that will be, I don't know. But how are you thinking about what you hope is your legacy? What will be your legacy as you look back at what you accomplished in your time at what is now Equity Group Holdings? Maybe 10 years back, if you asked me that question, I would have said my legacy would have been disruption and democratization of financial services, bringing financial inclusion. We started when only 4% of Kenyans were banked. Now 87% of Kenyans have access to financial services. But looking back today, they will be more defined by the work of our foundation. We have 60,000 kids that we have given scholarships. We have about 761 kids. We have found global universities, scholarships. When I look at that, the impact of that generation and what we have really created, their work most likely will define what I'll be remembered for. 87% uh, of all those kids are orphans. 
and yet now they have access to education that they could never have uh, accessed. And I believe we have created the next generation of leaders. In many ways, you are serving that kid without any shoes. Absolutely. Uh, it's really the literary James Mwangi where nobody would have seen who they would ever become. I feel every child should be given a chance. Society give me a chance. And if I was never given a chance, Professor, I would not be with you today. I've been speaking with James Mwangi, Group CEO of Equity Group Holdings. Equity is headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya, and serves more than 18 million customers in six African countries. Equity's purpose is to provide inclusive financial services that transform livelihoods, give dignity, and expand opportunities. For more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment, visit my deeppurpose.net website. While you're there, you can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. Companies that are serious about establishing and working towards a deep purpose find that it delivers game-changing results for the workers, shareholders, and larger society. So, visit with me at deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by David Shin and Stephen Smith, with help from Jen Daniels and Craig McDonald. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati. Thanks for listening.